Hey everyone, welcome to another exciting episode with Arthi and Sriram right here. And we have somebody that we've been fans of for a very, very long time. And we want to get on the show for quite some time. And um, the one, the only, the founder of Oculus, the founder of Andrew, Palmer Lucky. Palmer, thank Woo! you so much for coming on the show. I'm stoked to be here. Oh my goodness. Okay, I'm going to ask you a very important, serious question, which has been asked very publicly last week, which is, what did you get done this week? <laughs> what did you get done this week? It's such a great rallying cry, you know. It's so, so, it so is. for people who are in on it, they 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 can be motivated. Uh, for the people who who hate Elon, it makes them angry. So like that's the best type of statement is the people that are aligned with you. It it further aligns them, and the people who don't like you, well, they're just not going to like it anyway. Um, <laughs> so what have I gotten done this week so far? Not that much. The week has the week has just started. Yeah. Um, but uh, we've you know, been doing some investor stuff, been doing some tech stuff, uh, totally candidly, and not, not, I won't give away any names, but the fundraising environment's really, really challenging right now for a lot of companies. People are struggling to raise money. People yeah. who are closing rounds, the LPs are not making their capital calls, and then the rounds are nonetheless, even though the, you know, the founders thought they crossed the finish line, and then the LPs aren't willing to sell off stocks uh, and, and liquidate to make their wow. capital calls, and boom, the rounds are falling apart. So I've actually been dealing with it. I've got some friends who have been struggling to raise, and uh, I've had quite a few defense companies, uh, mostly much smarter, s smaller startups, look at Anderil, look at the fact that we've had so many successful acquisitions of small companies say, hey, you know, we should mm -hmm. have a discussion. Maybe we could do more together than apart. Um, mm -hmm. so that's, that's what I've been getting done this week. Wow. Uh, uh but that sounds like a lot. By the way, I love that Elon question because I think it brings a focus back on just the basics. Yeah. It's the end of the day, like, what are we doing? What are the bare basics of all what we all, and it kind of cuts through a lot of the chatter. So it kind of appeals to a certain kind of person. Well, you know who it appeals to? It appeals to the same, I, the same person who I think was energized uh, by something that A16Z was pushing, which was, you know, it's time to time build. To build. Time yeah. to build. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Time to build. And I think I've, you, know, you see it on t-shirts. You see people talking about it all the time. I think, I think what did you get done this week is going to go down in history as uh, one of those really, really powerful one sentence. Uh, I think so too. And I, th I, you know, I'm sure Elon never like meant for this to go public and all of that. Like he didn't no, craft it with this PR right. plan in mind, but when Mark wrote, First, when he wrote Software Eats the World, I thought that was so inspiring. And uh, then later on, when he wrote It's Time to Build, I was like, holy shit, this yeah. is amazing. Yeah. And, you know, it's like it just it kind of like it, it's kind of this uh, Rorschach test almost to this like certain kind of people and the founder mindset folks who are like, I need to go do something. I need to go build something. I need to actually like, you know, be constructive with my time. And then yep. you have this other set of people who are just like completely hating on it, which makes no sense to me. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think it, it's, this is, this is getting, now, now we're just bringing Twitter into a podcast, but uh, you know, I, 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 I pointed out there's a bunch of people who are, uh, who are looking at those texts. They're like, wow, you know, Elon is, is so clearly a deficient communicator and he's so ineloquent. And the, this, I think there was one writer who said that the, the myth of tech genius has been busted. Oh, I saw that. I saw that. That was hilarious. Like, look, there's a certain group of people who thinks that uh, that how impressed other people are by the eloquence of themselves in text messages is a sign of intelligence and a measure of worth. And then there's another group that sees what did you get done this week? And they're like, oh, man, cutting right to the core of the issue. <laughs> no performative antics. No hedging. No. What? was your focus over you know the last quarter it's just very very 
it's very, yep. very powerful to do things. Yep. Like that. Yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm glad we all like it. I, I love it. I have to watch what I say about that whole thing, you know. Uh, but I would say it's when I saw that piece, I was like, do you folks not realize it's as if that Elon Musk was an unknown founder that nobody had heard of before today, and Twitter was an unknown company that nobody had seen anything of ever before and right. that was what that, that was what the deal was about which is well, there's the all case. these people saying oh like i can't believe he's all these people are texting him and nobody's talking about doing diligence on twitter it's like what are you talking about everyone <laughs> they already know the deal there's it's no a public company exactly it's, 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 like, not, it's not a start yeah if they're a public company all the information should be out there of substance <laughs> if, if, if not then uh, you know, there, there's some problems. Yeah. I, I Palmer's saying all the things that I, I, I can't talk about, but I love it. Okay, great. all right, okay, we wanna, we wanna get a lot of this stuff because a lot of Twitter, lots of, you know, you've been in the news, but I wanna go back all the way to the beginning. Now, you know, the first time I ever heard about you was, you know, the early days of Oculus, right? And, you know, and uh, you, you know, when I was reading about you, I was like, well, here's this teenager uh, at the time who yep. was deeply, deeply, you know, in his house, in his garage, building kind of this DIY gear. So I want to kind of unpack, like, talk to me a little bit about your childhood, your upbringing. How did you get so curious about technology, VR, and just nerding out and building things? Oh, man. I mean, it's a long, it's, 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 a, it's a long story, but I mean, the short version is I started taking things apart and putting them back together, like a lot of people do, started doing part-time, part kind of part-time computer fixing work, phone fixing work. There were kind of, a few things that were a really big deal for me uh, in terms of kind of being the underpinning of Oculus. I'd say like like actually three things. One, uh, it was getting really good at uh, at at uh, making make, <laughs> making money by uh, fixing phones. So mm -hmm. I, I got into the business of basically buying buying broken phones in, mm -hmm. in significant numbers, uh, taking all the working parts out of them, putting them back together, unlocking the phones, and then selling them on eBay. When mm -hmm. the iPhone came out, that was a game changer. I mean, I, for, for a while, I was raking in a couple hundred bucks a day doing that. And this was, this was before kind of uh, the Chinese sweatshops doing the same thing, got their hands on, on it. This was uh, before, before unlocked phones kind of became commoditized. But like that was a huge deal because that's actually what funded almost all of my early virtual reality research and development that I was doing when I was, I started when I was about 15 years old building nice. virtual reality. Sets. So I, I got actually extraordinarily lucky that I became interested in, in, uh, in virtual reality headsets. And you know, the reason I was interested in VR is because I was a PC gamer. I had built a really nice computer, built a really nice multi-monitor setup. And then as I'm sitting there looking at my eight monitor AMD Ifinity setup, I'm thinking, <laughs> geez, like what's next? What's the next step from here? Hmm. Um, and 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 I realized that the next step was not interesting. It was going to be more monitors, more pixels, more graphics cards, more of the same. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I should really be asking a different question. What's the last step? Not the next step, the last step. And obviously the final form of gaming was going to be virtual reality. I was a sci-fi fan. I was very familiar with it. And so that was a... Uh, that was a really that was a really big realization for me. I started working on VR as a hobby. At the same time, uh, something not a lot of people know, but I actually I still have it in my bio today. I'm actually the founder of Mod Retro, which was an online an online forum. People don't use bulletin boards anymore, mm -hmm. but it was a it was an online forum for people who were modifying vintage game consoles and updating them with modern components and turning them into self-contained handheld units. So adding modern LCD screens, modern lithium polymer batteries, building, like taking in a Nintendo. What kind of game consoles? Like Nintendo Entertainment Systems. Uh -huh. Nice. Uh, very That's popular awesome. the Nintendo 64. Uh, yeah. So we developed techniques to take them apart, 
trim the boards, replace a lot of the power hungry components with newer ones, add screens, add batteries, and turn them into these self contained units. Well, that, uh, I, I just went on this, you know, nost, you know, uh, I went on this nostalgia kick recently and I found out like how to buy some old NES systems, N64, mm-hmm. you had to play GoldenEye, obviously. Um, and there are actually some interesting Kickstarter programs. Uh, there's a startup which is trying to make more modern versions with all the, the games built in. So you're not like taking out the cartridge and blowing air and then stuffing That's it back true. in like <laughs> all of us uh, grew up doing. Uh, it, and why the games are actually really fun, right? Like you can kind of oh, play. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the limits of the technology, I think, actually, in many ways, inspired some of the most interesting game types that wouldn't have existed had there been endless technical freedom, uh, right. kind of constraining the creative direction. But that that was a really important part of founding Oculus that a lot of people don't realize. It was a community of people that were all learning about hardware, learning about uh, software, learning how to do these things. And it was also a very collaborative community. You know, mm-hmm. There was no credibility in talking. There was only credibility in doing. And so the way you got credibility was doing things and not keeping it to yourself, but showing everyone what you were doing, how you're doing it, showing your work basically. And uh, that was a really tight-knit group of a few thousand people uh, who uh, really were you know, really fascinated by this hobby, spending a lot of time pushing it forward. Mm-hmm. And it was a thing where, you know, we were able to make huge advancements as a group of basically teenagers with no jobs because nobody had been paying attention to it, a little bit like virtual reality. And a fun right. fact, almost all of the early hardware employees of Oculus were actually moderators on the Mod Retro forums. Oh, um, cool. it was, uh, it, 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 it's kind of wild how that works. You know, that, was, that was my network of people. Those were the yeah. people I knew. And I'm like, man, that's a guy who can get stuff done. That's yeah. a guy who can get stuff done. Um, and then I guess the, the the last thing, the last thing that got me interested was not just on the hardware side, but also I got I became very interested in uh in uh Linux-based handheld game consoles, particularly a handheld called the GP2X. And mm. uh, that was that was a it was a it was a handheld game console that natively ran Linux and you could build your own software for it, which was pretty cutting edge in a kind of pre-app store era. Like, oh man, mm-hmm. I can buy a device and I can I can just code stuff for this mobile device I can bring anywhere. People have been making homebrew software for computers for a long time, but it was a mobile homebrew device. And uh, that was something that made me realize the importance of com- software communities, the importance of releasing good software development kits for the mm-hmm. hardware that you have. And I, th- those were all things that hugely contributed to the success of Oculus. You know, people think Oculus was just about building the headset, but it wasn't. It was the headset was okay, especially the DK1 we initially launched that I designed when I was 19 years old living in a camera trailer and then a condemned motel. Um, But it was also the community we built around it and the SDK that we built that made it so easy for anyone to build virtual reality software. Up till then, you had to be a VR expert to mm-hmm. kind of integrate a head tracker and a headset and and software that was all very expensive and you had to deeply understand motion tracking and right. low latency yeah. rendering. Yeah. We made it so easy that anyone with Unreal Engine or Unity 3D software could port over to Oculus, if not a, a good user interface or anything, but they could get basic functionality literally in a matter of minutes. And that that was really the key. We made it and we built a community around it. So a lot of our audience are like teenagers and young people, right? So here you are, you know, 15, 16, 17, um, you know, not in corporate America yet. Like, when did Oculus go from, you know, and a lot of us kind of grew up online, right? I grew up on Usenet, uh, et cetera. Everyone kind of has a family online experience. How did Oculus go from something you're spending your time on and weekends on to be like, oh, this could be a thing. This could be a company. So th- there were a bunch of different things that were going on at the same time. And I, th- I think one of them is my technology I started working on it when I was 15, but when I was 19, 
there, I, I kind of had a few breakthroughs all at once and realized that for the first time I had something that was not just cheaper than other VR headsets that were on the market that cost tens of thousands of dollars, but also actually significantly better at the same time. I was building headsets right. for hundreds of dollars that were better than headsets that cost tens of thousands of dollars. And there, there were a lot of things that I figured out, but I'd say the, the main thing that I did was design a headset fundamentally around doing uh, real-time pre-distortion of the image rather than handling distortion of various kinds in hardware. In other words, replacing expensive optical components with free software on you know, run, right. running on a graphics card. That was something that people had never really designed a headset around. People had mm -hmm. people had said, oh, I'm gonna have a little bit of distortion correction, you know, to make up for that last little few percent. People have been doing that in cameras, for example, for a very long time. But nobody had said, what if I could build a headset that had great field of view, lightweight, low cost, uh, but it's gonna have awful geometric distortion, massive chromatic aberration. And the only way that it can be solved is through massive pre-distortion of the rendered image. So that when it comes mm -hmm. out the lens on the other side, it actually looks correct. That that was mm -hmm. a that was a if not a brand new idea, certainly a novel one to to actually get out to people. And so I decided that I was gonna drop out of school. Mm -hmm. I figured that college would always be there for me. I had been going to school for about three years at that point. Um, so yeah. I, I started going to college when I was 15 or 16. Um, and for the, how did your family, everyone else around you react to this whole thing, right? Did they know what you're up to? Like, hey, is this weird, you know, a matrix style thing going on in the garage? Like, how did they react to all of it? People knew I was doing it. And actually, most of my friends, uh, I, I was showing them regularly my updates. And uh, I, I very clearly remember showing it to some of my best friends and them saying, I guess this is cool, whatever. Uh, and, and it was when, it was when I started to show people and they said, oh my God, this yeah. is incredible. That was when I decided to drop out of school. I said, I got to do something with this. Like school will always be there for me. I'm not dropping out. I'm just taking a break. Right. You know, if, if this, <laughs> if this is, I, I will feel so dumb if I don't do this. And actually at the, a lot of things happened at the same time. Uh, I got into touch with John Carmack, who yeah. was of doom and, you know, basically 3D 3D game engines as so a can, whole. Can, 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 I want to ask you about this um, because yeah. John Carmack is a living legend to you know millions of us, millions yeah, yeah. of people. Uh, you know, I was talking to somebody recently who worked with him. You know, at Meta, and he said, even today, he totally redefines what it means to be productive for a single engineer. Like he yeah. can do the work of 200 people teams by himself. So, how did you meet Carmack? And for a lot of us who haven't had the privilege of working with him, which you did, what do we as civilians not know about what makes him so special? Oh man. Well, you know, I, I first got in touch with him because he, he, unlike most people was actually paying attention to virtual reality back when it was dead. It, basically every few years he would go back and re-examine to see if it was ready yet. I actually mm -hmm. met him because he was posting on a different online forum that I was on. And he asked if he could get some help modifying his Sony head mounted display to have lower latency. And it was one that I had actually re reverse engineered about a year prior and understood the full display pipeline. I explained to him why it'd be very difficult to modify it to do what he wanted. And that it could be done, but that it was going to be an enormous engineering effort. And that it'd probably be easier to just, you know, build a new head mounted display than try and replace their entire video pipeline. And so that was actually how we got it. We, we started talking uh, was, was that that's how he found out about my prototypes. And you're, you're right. I mean, John is probably one of the top 10 most productive people in tech. And mm. I, 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 he is not recognized nearly enough for that. There's a lot of people talking about the, you know, here's how you manage a company and here's, here's how you found a company. Nobody's talking about how John redefines, as you said, what it means to be a productive individual in a company. Um, I think there's, there's a few things. First of all, he's just an absolutely brilliant person Two, He does not care 
if he upsets you. So I think one of the reasons he's so effective is he does not uh, couch things. He does not hide behind, uh, you know, he does not sandbag. He will tell you exactly what he thinks and he will tell you when you are wrong and he will not do things that he thinks are wrong. And he will always do the way things the way that he is. And that can make him a very difficult person for, for some people to work with. You'll notice by the way, that I'm couching things. See, you know, and he would probably just say, I piss people off. They deserve it. Um, <laughs> no malice, but just a clear recognition yep. that, that is a, an, a, an obstacle and that is so powerful um and mm-hmm. I, i'd say most of it is just he's also been around for a very long time he deeply deeply understands the interactions between hardware and software like down to mm-hmm. how the instructions are executing on the silicon he has a mm-hmm. deep understanding that goes so far beyond what anyone is taught in school today Certainly beyond what enthusiasts, people are like, oh, I'm a computer enthusiast. Like, okay, you learn Java. Like, okay, that's one thing. You have people who are learning C++. Okay, that's one thing. Okay. Then you have the hardcore nerds who are still doing stuff in assembly. But then there's John Carmack, who's like, oh, yeah, not only am I part of the assembly, I deeply that's understand awesome. the inherent operation of each individual piece of hardware to the point where I can actually take advantage of it beyond you know, simply the instruction set that they teach you on. I mean, that is very rare today. And I, I, I feel like it's a, it's a bit of a lost art. And John, one amazing thing about John is, what I mean, like we all grown up, we watched the multi-hour lecture. He was just on at Lex Friedman for five hours and yep. you expect him to be the best in the world at anything with the GPU. Like you get that. But in the last couple of years, what's really special is, um, you know, Well, about two years ago, you know, he went off, did this week where he was like, I'm going to teach myself neural networks from the original papers, writes code and just see, you know, off in a cabin somewhere in, you know, Texas somewhere, drinking Diet Coke. And within a couple of years, he's arguably, maybe not arguably, one of the world's best AI programmers, right? So somebody who is like the LeBron James or the Michael Jordan of one industry, they just threw, like, it, it maybe there's an interesting point there, which is, A lot of people well, think- let's just remind people because not everyone knows John as well as we do. John not only you know, created Doom and Quake and Wolfenstein, all these you know, 3D properties, he also started a rocket company that was very successful, probably the most successful company at the time in its in its budget range they were doing better things than companies spending a hundred times more money they moved very fast building a vertical takeoff and landing rocket actually long before spacex did people mm. forget this like john carmack and his guys were launching rocket ships up into the stratosphere and then recovering them and landing them before almost anyone was even thinking that was possible so i mean you, like it's not just that he went from gaming to vr to ai he's also done other incredible things and then let's not forget back in the day he used to hot rod cars and ferraris and he was making more power out of his ferrari than literally any person in the world it was the most (laughs) powerful ferrari on the planet so this is this is one of those guys where he has to be careful what he works on because he's going to be the best at whatever it is um so I want to fast forward a bit, right? So you talk about, uh, you know, and, uh, and I want to get to, because I think the, the time at Meta later, but you talk sure. about VR being the final platform, right? And in a world we live in, you know, we have amazing AR, right? I love what you say about like Snap's AR being underrated, for example, in terms of like the amount of computer vision happens or TikTok or whatever. Yep. What do you mean when you say VR is the final platform compared to AR and all the other things that we have today? Oh man, this is a, this could be a philosophical debate more than anything else. So mm-hmm. I would argue that augmented reality falls into the category of virtual reality. You are mm-hmm. like 
yes, there are real elements of the world that you are also bringing into into that view. Uh, but yeah. but but the reality you are perceiving is is edited. It is it is synthetic. And the thing about AR is that people say, oh, there's AR and VR. It's not that simple. It's actually really a spectrum of how much of what you're seeing is real versus not real. For example, um, people people think about AR as just a few floating icons out in the world. Well, what if I do something like take a real-time captured office from the other side of the world and I merge it with this office? And now a bunch of participants from those office are now sitting in my office and, in, and, and vice versa. Well, that's also augmented reality, but quite a bit of it is virtual. Well, what if we're also going to edit out a bunch of distracting things in the background? Well, now you're editing it even more. What, it, it, there's no point where it suddenly becomes, oh, that's not AR anymore. Now it's mm -hmm. VR. I mean, coming mm -hmm. in from the other angle. You have VR and uh, you know, you're in a fully immersive virtual world where nothing is real. Well, what if I actually bring in uh, just my hands so I can see my body? I look at myself, I'm in the virtual world. Nobody would say, oh, well, now it's augmented reality, even though you clearly have elements of the real world in the virtual space. What if you added your keyboard? What if you added the ability to push a button and you know, quickly get a view of what's going on on the other side of your house using x-ray vision that's fed by all of the security cameras in your building? Like, at what point is it not VR? At what point is it not right, AR? Right. So I, now, now that I've kind of set that, that's what I mean when I say VR is is the final platform. You know, that people say, "Oh, I think AR is the final platform." It's all the same. It's right. it's, it's it's the ability to allow a person to see anything and experience anything that a person could experience or could imagine experiencing. And people say, "Oh, well, you know, that's not just sight," and they're right. Virtual reality is not just about sight. It's about every sense that you have it's about mm -hmm. sight it's uh critically uh, people don't understand how important it is it's about sound uh it's also about touch and scent and taste those things are going to come later because i think they're they're just uh you know higher hanging fruit the low hanging mm -hmm. fruit is vision and sound and then to and then you start to get into haptics mm -hmm. but but that's the dream it's the ability yeah. for people to experience anything that they could experience in the real world and anything they could imagine experiencing in the dream world and then to if you can build that if you can perfect virtual reality, there's so many things you never need to perfect because right. it can wholly augment and replace that. Like if you can perfectly augment all human perception, what in the world do you need a phone for? Why would you ever constrain information consumption and input to that device? Uh, what do you need televisions for? It's just mm -hmm. one. Desktop computers, an irrelevant concept. Laptops. <laughs> Maybe you want to have a keyboard because it's a superhuman input device. But in that case, you really want to get to a brain to computer interface. But like, okay, maybe keyboards won't be obsolete. Keyboards and yeah. mice are pretty superhuman. But that's what I mean when I say the final platform. Once you get there, the only step after that is mind melding into the Borg and we're all communicating directly brain to brain, which I'm not convinced will happen for partly social, but mostly technical reasons. We'll see. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll and the singularity, but we'll get to, um, by the way, one of the, my favorite things you've said, one of my favorite things you've said about this topic is when some people look at VR, they look at a current state and, um, and they're like, what you talk about the matrix ready player one seems a bit far away, but you said how much time we have all spent and all of us kind of flying a very different part of the world and mm. sitting in a conference room across the table with fluorescent lighting. Like, we don't need to do that. I was like, yes, I get that. I would sign up for it. Because it's so much time. It's so much money. It's so mm. much It's so much energy consumption. And you know, people will say to me, oh, but Palmer, you know, VR, VR, let's say in the next 10 years, will never be able to surpass the experience of vacationing in Hawaii. Like, who cares? That's not what 99% of travel is. You know, there's yeah. so much. 
so much business travel that occurs, so much, uh, you know, so so much necessary travel that could be replaced or at least augmented by by virtual reality. And it, it it's kind of a no brainer that it's yeah. going to happen. And when I said if we can perfect VR, there's many other things we don't need to perfect. One yeah. of those is, uh, for example, travel. Like yeah. it, it could be that we don't need to be able to jump yeah. around the world for business travel every day. It could be that we could just bypass that entire technological mm -hmm. branch and focus on other things. Oh, I would like totally. that. I would like oh, that. I wanted to talk about Anduro. You know, most people, you you do one big company, you know, something as like groundbreaking as Oculus. Especially when it's consumer money. You know, that, exactly. that's yeah. like, and, Anduro is a, we're, we're extraordinary. We're, we're actually more successful than Oculus by almost any reasonable metric we're actually which is insane more revenue we have more contracts we're a yeah. bigger company with more people like it's yeah. actually better than oculus ever was when i was there for sure for sure yeah but, but from a, a brand people don't all know about it everyone knows about oculus everyone has an oculus quest everyone's like my grandson loves your thing that you made <laughs> nobody ever says my grandson loves what you're doing at Anderol. <laughs> well, <laughs> well they will yeah um so. but you know i think uh most founders when you know you become wealthy have like one really successful company they would like go off into the sunset you know know how to like live life kind of be so, wealthy so second time unicorn founders yes yeah. exactly yeah. um why why did you start andy roll and you started andy roll pretty quickly like right after leaving facebook oh it was directly like it, was, it was a direct transition like and this. two, why pick such a hard problem again? Yeah. Like, you know, it wasn't as if like Oculus was kind of a walk in the park. Yeah. This was like totally different technological challenges, different space. Hated by Silicon Valley. No one wants to, <laughs> which I want, want to get to. And, and here you are. And you're going to build like, I don't know, like a SaaS spreadsheet company. No offense to SaaS spreadsheet companies, right? Uh, but you're like, well, I'm going to pick a totally different hard Yeah. Problem. Why? Why is that? Well, there. I mean, to, to, to talk about that, you kind of have to go into in, into the past a little bit. I mean, yeah. I, I think that people uh, people have free will, but they're also products of of uh, products of their environment. And I think there's a lot of decisions in your life where, uh, at least for me, I couldn't have imagined making a different decision. I really didn't. I didn't even feel like I had a choice. It felt like I had to do a certain thing the certain mm -hmm. way. Like the first example of that that I can think of was actually when I was starting Oculus. I was deciding, was I going to launch a Kickstarter for the Oculus Rift or was I going to take the offer that Sony had made from PlayStation Group to run a virtual reality research lab in Southern California that I would get to build up from, from, from scratch as a teenager? I mean, that was a wild mm -hmm. offer. Yeah. And then I, 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 you know, I'd grown my whole life up with this idea of like, oh, I want to run my own company. I want to do my own thing. I want to be able to call the shots. And uh I, I think, you know, when, when I made Oculus, I had to drop out of college. I couldn't have imagined staying and not trying to start a company. And I also right. couldn't imagine going to work for Sony. Now, they then doubled the offer when I turned them down. And then I really had to think about it. But then I was like, you know what? I really don't have a choice here. Like, could I, could I really go work for a corporation when I'm standing here on the precipice of what could be yeah. the most important technology in the history of humanity? And whether you disagree, people disagree with me, whether it's true or not. But that's what I believed at the time. And because mm -hmm. I believed that, I had to start my own company. It was the only right. path. And I'd say it was the same thing when I started Anderl. Um, you know, the th important thing to remember is most founders, they sell their companies, they make their money, they go off into the sunset, and they feel like that's it. They, they, they have no unfinished business, no mm -hmm. loose strings yeah. necessarily. Mm -hmm. In my case, I was fired. And so mm -hmm. I was at the peak of my career. And then all of a sudden, I was fired. And I had people saying, well, 
Palmer's a one hit wonder. You know, he might've built the Oculus, but he clearly isn't a big company guy. He just can't handle the pressure when you get to real scale. You know, he was, he's more of the type, he's a real good garage hacker, but not the kind of guy who can really, really build something. He sure got lucky. Uh, and that I, I'd say. Did, did that piss you off? What pissed me off. And I, I mean, I had a chip on my shoulder. Yeah. I was yeah. pissed off at all these people. And like, I, I don't want to make it sound like, like it was my only, my only motivation. I'll get to my real motivation in a second, but yeah. Like I could not have retired. I, I yeah. my, my my ego would not have let me even <laughs> consider it. I I was thinking to myself, I'm going to prove them all wrong. They're going to see. They're all going to see that they were making a terrible mistake mistake by getting rid of me. That I was not a one hit wonder. That I yeah. was not just lucky, and that yeah. I was going to do it again. And I was going to prove everyone wrong. And I was going to rub it in their face. I mean, yeah. it was it, people often they, they they try to couch things in you know the the. The, the, the nicer version where it's like, I was just really inspired to move on to another adventure. But for me, it was, it was, it was partly spite. I was like, I'm yeah. going to show them and they're going to regret it. And they're going to look like idiots. You know, um, I'm, I'm really glad you're saying that, you know, we've been through a fair share of like career ups and downs, but we, I meet a lot of founders who've been through, I, you know, I've been one myself who've been through really hard times uh, no. when, you know, your investors don't believe in you. People mm -hmm. won't invest. Uh, your employees are like disagreeing with you or whatever. Like, you know, like the world is just like stacked up against you. Yep. And uh, it's so motivating for people to hear this, for you to just be honest and yeah. be like, part of this is just, it's not that, you know, I wanted to like prove it to like everybody else. It's just fight. Like, it's yeah. fine. Yep. It's fine to say well, that. Especially in my case, like the, the official reason I was fired and the reason that Facebook was giving people wasn't that I had done anything uh, particularly horribly wrong. I, I think it was because of my political contributions because they iced me and then fired me six months later. Without getting into all of that, which we could do later if we want to, uh, they were saying, oh, there just wasn't a place for him. You know, it's a, it's a, mm. the company's grown past him now. So it, it's actually like the most passive aggressive insult you can make to humiliate a founder. It's like, oh, well, they, they were great. We're really, like, if you look at the statement they made when they fired me, it was like, we're really grateful for his contributions to the early days of Oculus and kickstarting the VR revolution. It was, it was so dismissive of me as anything but the guy who barely got it off the ground. So that that was this that was why I had to start a company. Wait, wait, I want to I want to ask you just a little bit about this because uh, we haven't met before this, and we but we have a lot of mutual friends. And the thing sure. that's always fascinated me about you is for a lot of people that whole sequence, right? And you talked a lot about what happened on Facebook, you know, yeah. and that whole period. It's very public. That would have crushed a lot of folks emotionally and mentally, right? right. Um, and and also if even if they were not crushed they would want to come back and want a way to find acceptance, to do the popular thing, right? Right. And there is something about your psychological makeup, which I'm curious to get your take on, which is not only did you were like, well, screw those guys, I'm going to show them, number one. <laughs> but then you pick a space which is, you know, at the time, incredibly unpopular in Silicon Valley, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who I think go live lives optimizing to be invited to the right dinner conversation. Oh, I right? see what you're saying. Like a right way to, to show everyone would have been to like start, you know, a cancer research company or yeah, yeah. like that. Shriram has a way of saying this. He says, would you get invited to the next Met Gala? Like, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that, that's what made it so interesting. You know, I, I talked about why I had to start a company of mm -hmm. some kind, and I considered a few things. Um, but the thing that I settled on was national security because I thought it was the most important problem that I could work on. And in particular, it was one that I didn't see my peers working on. I didn't see other companies solving the problem. You know, I, I felt like we were in this unique period where for the first time in history, 
big tech companies were refusing to work with the military because they were totally beholden to our strategic adversaries. Like yeah. Apple can't work with the US military in any meaningful capacity because 95% of their manufacturing is in China. Mm -hmm. And whenever they've tried to pull even a tiny percentage of it out of China, China's threatened them to in, in a way that would basically destroy their business overnight. 100 billion ca in cash reserves that they've got, that's not enough to destroy the impact of China deciding they don't want Apple, the largest company in the world to exist anymore. And this is true across Google. It's across, even true across Facebook. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that I, I really felt deeply passionate about this Wait, why where did that come from did you were you always interested in um national defense you know where did that come from oh man well i mean there's there's like yeah like i said people are products of of their environment to a certain degree um so yeah. there, there's a there's a few things um one i think i had always kind of been very supportive of the military been supportive of the idea of having a strong a strong a strong military that can deter conflicts from happening in the first place uh, because wars typically happen when one side underestimates the power of the opposing side there are of course people who will wage uh illogical wars that they cannot win for ideological reasons but those are the exception not the rule in general oh. if you can be strong enough that they are scared of you then they won't fight you and that's true even if you're weaker you don't have to be stronger than them you have to be strong enough to make yourself a prickly porcupine they don't want to step on mm -hmm. and so I'd, I'd always kind of believed this and actually people don't know about this not because it's secret it's just the media doesn't talk about it much before i worked at oculus i worked in an army funded vr research lab the ict mixed reality lab on a variety of different uh, uh military funded VR projects, including one called Brave Mind, which used virtual reality exposure therapy to treat veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. And that was actually where I first got exposed to how behind the Department of Defense was on a lot of this technology and how big of an impact the right technology could have. And th mm -hmm. that was something that stuck with me for a long time. Uh, I made friends who are in the industry. I, I and I, But I think where I started to really become concerned was when I uh, sold Oculus to Facebook, moved up to Silicon Valley. And then once I was in Silicon Valley, re realized that culturally I was in a place where people thought defense was terrible, that it was morally mm -hmm. reprehensible, that it wasn't something you could work on. And there were all these financial incentives for companies to not work with the military so they could maintain access to Chinese capital, Chinese manufacturing, um, and, and the Chinese market as a place to actually sell mm -hmm. stuff. And so all of those were kind of driving me. And then I guess also, you know, I, I've often looked back and like, what was really influencing me? I'm like, well, also, a lot of my favorite favorite media characters growing up uh, were weapons manufacturers, and so that probably, you know, I, I was you know, big, big, I was a big Iron Man fan. Uh, going <laughs> further back, I don't know, you ever watched the the, the anime Yu-Gi-Oh? You know, the, the, the trading card game. No, yeah. I have not. Well, one of one of the main characters is is a guy named Seto Kaiba, who actually runs a weapons manufacturing company and then pivots into building uh, virtual reality simulations. And, uh, and and holographically projected card games. And I've, I've, I've always thought it's very interesting where he was like my favorite Yu-Gi-Oh character when I was like eight years old. Oh, and now cool. I've ended up where I built a virtual reality company and then I've pivoted into being a weapons manufacturer. <laughs> you wonder, like, did I really have a choice in any of this, or am I just, yeah. really just uh, you know, whatever routines are left over from when I was yeah. when I was eight years old? You yeah. know, one is like, you know, it's interesting because you point, you know, and one of the things you pointed like now, obviously, it's popular, you know, given what's happened in Ukraine and what's well, probably going to happen. For a sec, like this is this was actually part of my bet. Like you, you asked, well, why didn't I do something that was popular? Part of this was that I knew that defense was popular, was unpopular. But yeah. I knew that I could do something that was punching way above my weight, working in an area where not enough people were working on it. And I was certain that it would 
become important and that people would understand the importance at some point. Like I didn't just look out at the world and say, I want to build weapons. I said, look at the world around us. Russia is going to invade Eastern Europe. It's very clear. Like, it's, it's so obvious. Putin's saying he's going to do it. Look at what's happening with Taiwan. You have China explicitly saying we are going to invade Taiwan. We are going to take over their semiconductor industry. You have all of these belligerents all over the world threatening Western democracies. And I, 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 don't, I don't want to sound shallow here, but it, it's the truth. I think if I had known that defense was unpopular then and would basically remain this unpopular backwater where I could make a lot of money, I wouldn't do it. But I knew then I said, you know what? I'm going to build a defense company. We're going to build the tools that defend Western democracy against these aggressors. And one day they'll see, they'll all see mm -hmm. that this actually was the best thing that I could do. And then it's like what you said, now it's the current thing. Ukraine happened. Everyone thinks it's the coolest thing. Everyone wants me to speak at their conferences and all the people <laughs> who were shitting on us are all of a sudden either saying nice things or at least nobody's saying really negative things about us. I mean, there was a Bloomberg story not two years ago. It, this was, this was during, this was while WeWork was imploding and mm -hmm. Uber had just had all of their leadership blown out by their investors. And there was obviously a ton of controversy around that. And then Bloomberg puts out a story. It says, Anduril, the most controversial company in tech. I'm like, are <laughs> you freaking kidding me? Building, like, we, this, we, at that time, we weren't even building weapons. We're building security systems and, and, and surveillance drones. Like, oh yeah, this is the most controversial thing anyone could possibly be doing. Um, and of course, nobody would ever write something like that today because there's. Yeah, it, I mean, they just have to look at what's happening in Ukraine, obviously. Um, what, you know, obviously with Apple and Google, I totally get the exposure to Chinese capital and markets, but a lot of these also come from internal employee revolts, right? Yes. I forget, you know, um, Google has had, you know, I forget what the project was called, but there's a this project, project which like, right, right. And which had like, I think some internal employee revolts happen. Um, I think other big companies had variations of this uh, happen for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think? the employee bases of these companies um, seem to be so against defending the USA. So I've, I've evolved on this issue. I'd say like five years ago, I would have given you a different answer. So I'll tell you the answer that I gave back then, which was these people don't understand the importance of national security. They're totally ideologically broken. They're stuck in this, they're stuck in this, uh, in this, kind of uh, ideological bubble where you're not allowed to say that you support the military. And so it, that leads to people thinking that that must be how it is, especially younger people coming out of college. Right. Um, since then, I, th I think my thinking's evolved. Um, one, I've realized partly as a result of the Maven debacle, I think most tech workers actually are pro-military, even if they're not willing to say it. Um, I think that what you basically have is maybe nine out of 10 tech workers would agree that the United States military should have a stronger military than Russia or China. It's, it's actually mm -hmm. not that not that debatable. Mm -hmm. um, but what happens is you have this very vocal minority that is very vocally anti-military, and then executives at these companies are able to use those employees as a smokescreen for the media and say, you know what, we're listening to our employees who say they don't want to work on weapons technology. Now, of course, they don't listen to them on benefits or unionization or, 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 you know, or diversity quotas or any of these other things that employees are pushing. So, but on this one issue, for some reason, they happen to be aligned. The thing to remember about, about, uh, about Maven is Google pulled out a project Maven when it became public that they were working with the military on an AI program in, in a, in a relatively small capacity. Um, and people made this huge deal. They said, Oh, thousands of Google employees uh, signed an open letter uh, calling on leadership to pledge against military work. Well, that represented less than 1% of Google. 
And mm -hmm. so I'm not sure if that means 99% of Google thinks opposite, but it sure means that only 1% is willing to actually take any effort. Uh, I, 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 every time there's uh, this story about one of these big companies which says there's an employee revolt, it's usually if you divide the number of people writing the petition or protesting by the number, of, it's like sub, it's a tiny percent, right? That's you right. Know, and I would love to see a headline which says, 0.05% of this company says X, but that's never... Exactly. That, and that's what puts it into context. You know, it's thousands of people. Sounds like a lot. When you say, oh, it's actually a fraction of a percent, people were saying, oh, dozens of employees are resigning over the Maven work. It's like, well, wait a sec. Google has literally thousands of people a week in, a week in churn alone. So all you're really telling me is that at least one or two percent of the people who churned this week decided to mention the Maven thing as one of the reasons. <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah. meaningless. And so uh, the the um, the other thing that you have to remember is that a lot of the people who signed that agreement are not U.S. citizens. And I'm not saying this in in, in a xenophobic way, but in a rational way. If you have someone who, let's say, is a Chinese national living in London, working in the Google London advertising sales office. It's not surprising that they would not really be all of that in favor of building security technology for the United States military. And I, I can't blame them for this. I don't think this makes them a bad person, but why would a Chinese national think this? Why would somebody who has, you know, happens to be living in another country that isn't even the United States all of a sudden decide that this is a priority for them? So that's the thing that people also need to remember is yeah. a lot of the people who are so vocal about this are not even necessarily uh, they, 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 there's no world where they would actually support the United States having a stronger military force. And I would say the same thing for, uh, let's say, uh, someone who's from Russia. Like, would you expect a, a a Russian, and I'm not talking about ethnicity, I'm talking about citizenship, a Russian mm -hmm. national who works mm -hmm. for Google. Why would they openly support the U.S. military having Google's best technology? It, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a risk to them, it's a threat to them, and it doesn't make any sense for their country, uh, to the country that they're a citizen of. So right. th there's a lot of these things that come together, and I, I guess my evolved view on this is most tech workers do support the idea of the Western world. Yeah, they might they might not like what the U.S. does this year or what the U.K. does that year, but they generally like the idea of democracies that support self-determination and freedom of speech and uh you know some semblance of human rights yes. being the ones who are in charge and i i think it's a very vocal minority that right. kind of out there saying no we we should give western militaries the best thing that we have um i think I, uh my view is that high ground in, in in arming western forces with sticks right and stones. right i think uh, i think defense is important and i think for me one of the moments which was eye-opening is in I think in some talk you'd mention how Snapchat and Snapchat filters have you know yep. better technology, better AI uh than you know US military system. Exactly. Which oh, it, it seems insanely <laughs> yeah. shock it's just shocking to me, right? Like you you're using these when you're like when you have a free minute, when you're just like doom scrolling and just like looking through this yeah. is purely entertainment. And even that has way better technology than something like defense which is yeah. like very much about yeah. your life and you know what the your country mm -hmm. and i think that's really really important so i believe like you know what andy rule is doing is like very important even before like the ukraine and now it's like it's the it's a current thing but even before that it just makes sense that on a technological basis we need to have the right kind of tech for defending mm -hmm. ourselves well, and, and the right people working on it it used to right. be that our best people in tech 
were working with the military, either directly uh, or through companies that did work with the military. You know, I, I like General Electric and, and Ford. Uh, you know, yes, they did a lot of consumer and enterprise and business work, but they also work with the military. You just don't see that with a lot of these tech companies today. And it, it's this is actually a problem that I think is not the tech company's fault. They're, they're, they're just pursuing maximum profit and making the best products. I can understand that. The problem is that the government has become completely incompetent in mm -hmm. growing small defense companies into large defense companies. We used to be very, very good at this. You know, Sam Colt started with nothing and then armed the entire Western world. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they, they say, uh, you know, God, God, uh, you know, God made man, but Sam Colt made them equal. Um, <laughs> Let's dig into this a little bit. So for a lot of us listening to this and even us, like we work in Silicon Valley, our exposure has been the Fang style companies, you know, yep. our, our model of, you know, um, DC is kind of opaque. We don't work there, right? So it, well, for good reason. <laughs> yeah, it's just like far away. It's not, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time there. And so what would like the folks who are listening to this, like a Facebook engineer or a Google PM, what would they not understand about the way defense companies work and the way the current state of the technology landscape there? Well, most defense technology companies work on a cost plus basis. They get paid for time and materials and then a fixed percentage of profit on top. And that incentivizes a certain type of business that is low margin, low risk, and very low investment on their part. And it also means that the incentives are totally perverse. Uh, you can often make more money by taking longer or designing a more expensive system or even just you know, running late and running over on all your costs. You'll actually make more money because your money that you make is just a percentage on those costs. Hmm. Uh, it, it was a model that made sense during World War II when we needed to basically hijack the entire U.S. industrial machine and make sure that these companies didn't go bankrupt building things that they had no idea how to build and no idea how to cost. Uh, but it doesn't make any sense in a modern, uh, you know, mostly peacetime scenario. And I think what the, what the government has done is created a world where tech workers, uh, they, they don't understand how the defense industry works. And that's, that is a little bit of a problem. But the bigger problem is that the Employees who do learn how defense work don't want to work in that model. They don't want to go to work in a prime who has those incentives because they're slow. Uh, there, there's a lot of you know a lot of of morass that they have to grind through. And also, you basically can't be successful as a defense startup founder unless you have massive resources, massive massive structural advantages. I mean, here's what it really boils down to in a couple sentences. Since since the end of the Cold War, 35 years ago, before Andrew, there were only two unicorns that had ever been created doing work with the military. Palantir, mm -hmm. SpaceX, both yep. founded by, by by billionaires, which means investors write them off. Uh, other than that, literally no unicorns at all in 35 years, even though it's a massive industry because the government has allowed consolidation to happen and allowed 80% of the business to go to a handful of these large primes and startups just don't get grown by the duty anymore. So compare that with any other industry. There's like or mattress companies that are unicorns in the same time period. There's dozens of fast casual dining companies, uh, hundreds of of of, uh, of mobile app companies, hundreds of financial technologies companies, hundreds of biotechnology unicorns, uh, at least a hundred gaming unicorns. So if you're a smart founder who does look into how the industry works, you're going to conclude, well, gee, I'm not going to start a defense company. I can't build things of scale, and I'm not going to be able to recruit the people I want. Uh, investors like. You know, like like uh, like A16Z for a long time, they would look at defense companies and say, "Look, it doesn't matter how good your team is, it doesn't matter how smart your people are. There's literally no examples of non-billionaire success in defense in 35 years. Why would I bet that you're going to be the one 
to crack the code with the government and make it happen. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so smart investors don't invest, or at least didn't invest in defense. Smart founders didn't smart defense companies. And then smart employees wouldn't go to work for defense startups because they know their equity is not going to be worth anything. And I, I wish I could say Andrew proved all of that wrong. Say, like, how, this, how does Andrew, <laughs> this is my great segue into Andrew, yeah, right? Like, what is Andrew? And I think how do you kind of like thread a needle through all the issues that you just described? Well, I mean, we, we learned a lot from Palantir and SpaceX, and it certainly didn't help that, like the founders of Palantir and SpaceX, Andrew was founded by somebody who had just sold their company for billions of dollars. I mean, that, that's helpful not just on having money to start and having credibility to start, but also helpful on the fundraising side. You know, you can pitch less on, here's why you should believe in my company, and more on the, hey, I made you a lot of money last time. <laughs> I'm only asking for a little bit of money this time. Appeal to the capitalistic instincts uh, again. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of investors, uh, you know, they, they say we don't invest in companies. We invest in people. And so, you know, you say, look, if you really invest in people, you should be investing in my new thing, no matter what I'm doing. Um, and, and I, I, that was a, that was a structural advantage we had that a lot of companies right. don't have, but we also from the beginning understood what game we were playing. A lot of defense companies uh, are started by irrational people. And I'm not trying to put people down. I'm speaking in general strokes, but I just talked about how it's almost impossible to build a successful defense startup. That means the people who get into it are doing it for irrational reasons, not in their <laughs> rational self-interest yeah. or finance, yeah. but because they are patriotic. They want to help the warfighter. They want to work on something that matters, that's cool, that they that they will feel meaning in. Um, and there's a lot of people who, unfortunately, start a company irrationally and then run the company irrationally, imagining that if they just build the right tech, they're going to be able to sell it. And that's not how it works. Yeah, We had... From day one, actually, like when we started Android, we had more people working on government relations and customer sales and strategy than we had engineers working on actual product because that's actually what you need to break into the system for the first time. That's what you need to actually get stuff done. Now we're at a much healthier mix. We're something like 80 to 85% engineers and then, you know, sales and government right. relations and facilities and all that. But in the early days, we were heavily investing in that. And because of that, Android probably has a better government relations team, government strategy team, uh, and kind of customer relationship than almost any defense company in, in mm -hmm. the world. And I don't say, I don't say that lightly. We, we have a great reputation. We have a great reputation for solving problems, for supporting people, for continuing to support them, even when the going gets tough, for not abandoning them like Google did during the Maven program, even when things get controversial. And, uh, I, I'd say like that, I, I forgot exactly what you asked, but like for, for, for where your early employees, a lot of people who had worked with you before, is that how you were able to bring them over? Oh yeah. I mean, basically the, the core of early Android was uh, me and then a few, uh, the, the, the co-founders were, uh, were uh, Brian Schimpf, who was director of engineering at Palantir, uh, Tree Stevens, who had been at Palantir and then also well, at the time was working at Founders Fund, uh, focused on government investing. I think he had met with 2000 different startups trying to find the next uh, the next uh, defense unicorn like Palantir or SpaceX and literally could not find a single one. Yeah. Uh, it, it was me and then also Joe Chen, who was one of the product leads at Oculus. And then a lot of the people we hired were basically engineers from Palantir and engineers from Oculus who believed in us. And they, they, they very much were betting not just on the company, but on us. They're like, look, Palmer, I believe in you and I believe that whatever you're doing, it's going to work. Uh, and it was the same thing with Brian Schimpf and Trey getting a lot of the people to yeah. come on board from the Palantir side. And that, those are advantages most startups don't have. They can't point and say, I have literally made billions of dollars building a technology company before. I know how to do it. And you can be in on the ground floor. Uh, it, 
there's I mentioned earlier, I wish that I could say I kind of cracked the code of of building a defense startup from nothing. But remember, I'm just another guy who sold his company for billions and then started a you know, defense right, company. Right, right, right. Yeah. If um, you want to look at it that way, you know, we were the third unicorn and I, I wouldn't say the problem has been solved. Like if you don't have the advantages that we had, it is still very hard to break into government sales. Um Okay, I want to get to somebody. Let's see this. Right? Nice to anybody who emails me, I'll give I'll I'll give you some <laughs> secret tips, but it's 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 not as easy as one, two, three. I love it. But I have a shout out. Uh, Catherine Boyle, who's a mutual friend and at A16Z, yep. is an investor who invests in this space. So, uh, in a good she, she was an investor in Andrel and believer in Andrel even before she joined the firm. So yeah. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. There we go. Shout out, Catherine. She's a multi-firm Andrel believer. There we go. Yeah, that's okay. awesome. So, so I want to get some really serious stuff, right? You know. Russia and then China, but let's talk about Russia first. So you were on the ground in, in Ukraine, Ukraine. Um, quite recently. That's right, just uh, a few weeks ago. And so what did you see, right? Because we, I think a lot of us kind of process uh, what's happening through the news and through the visuals. Um, what did you see on the ground? Uh, what do like folks like us may not realize? Where do you see this headed? Okay, well, working backwards, where is this headed? Uh, it's, it, it, it's headed in a bad direction right now. Um, I, I can't talk about everything that I saw there because you know, there's a bunch of stuff I saw I can't talk about. Um, Andrew, we, I wasn't just there to be a looky-loo. We've actually been involved in the Ukraine war since the second week of the conflict. So we, wow. we had hardware and software products there almost as soon as things started, as fast as we could get them in. And I was actually there to deliver some more hardware and also train a bunch of Ukrainian army operators on how to how to best use it to go after the Russians. So um, it was a it was it was a it was a it was a it was very much a work trip not a not, not a tourism trip but it, it's worth noting also this wasn't the first time that i had met Zelensky. Zelensky actually reached out to me uh back shortly after he was elected years before this uh because he read a wired magazine article about the work we were doing with u.s border patrol and he mm. said hey i've got a border security problem it's called russia and we really <laughs> need Technology oh, so that we man. can see what's coming across the border, uh, be able to provide targeting information with you across the border. And it's worth remembering that at the time, uh, the U.S. position was that Russia was not going to invade Ukraine and they didn't want to let Ukraine buy our technology because they were afraid that it would provoke Russia into doing military action against uh, Ukraine and other European nations. And it's wild because Zelensky, years ago, he knew this was going to happen. He says, they are going to invade. It is going to happen. We have yeah. to get the technology so that we can deter them because we do not have what we need to stop them right now. And if you don't give us anything, they will invade. And so when people ask me, wow, 2022, what a year. Who could have predicted this? Uh, my <laughs> answer is yeah. 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 It's a point you make also make about Taiwan, which I want to get to later. But right. So, so well, I, you, I, did you meet Zelensky then? Oh, yeah. So I met Zelensky in, in New York to talk about that and to, to try to get him some of our technology. And ultimately, we couldn't do it because of the factors I just talked about. I saw him again while I was in Kiev. So I, I went a few places in Ukraine, a few different sites we were training and uh, then, then then spent time in Kiev uh, doing a whole bunch of different stuff. Okay. There's a lot of things that I could talk about, but I'll, I'll talk about two things specifically. One, they have rebuilt extraordinarily quickly. Like the, the, the city definitely has some areas where you can see severe damage, but they've actually repaired most of the damage. People are out, they're running restaurants, they're running businesses. Like it, it, it does not, it does not feel in Kiev like a war zone anymore, which is, it, it's pretty incredible that basically the second the fighting stopped, they immediately started rebuilding. They didn't, they didn't kind of say, oh, well, this is just, you know, we're just going to live with kind of 
you know, this brutal bombed out part of the city. They said, no, we need, we, we need to, we need to show that we're resilient and that we're going to bounce back. And, and I think they've done it. The second thing that people don't expect, and you, you didn't ask this question, but I guess asked all the time, mostly by members of the U S military, what kind of weapons did you see that the Russians have that you didn't expect? What, what, what was the most powerful tool that the Russians have against Ukraine? And going over there, I would have initially said things like electronic warfare systems, counter drone mm -hmm. systems, long range precision fires. Coming back from Ukraine, it's something totally different. It's actually the full control of the media that Russia has in their own nation. That is the most powerful weapon that they have. Something that I, when the, when the conflict first started, uh, I kind of believed that everyone who is from Russia going into Ukraine must have understood that they were a monster on some level that they knew they were going in there to kill civilians and you know, in an unjust war that made no sense. After going to Ukraine, I've realized, after talking to a lot of people and hearing a lot of stories, the people who were in that first wave, the people who were going in the very beginning of the conflict where Russia was just flooding Ukraine, most of them actually thought that they were going to Ukraine to liberate oppressed Russians from Nazi rule and that they were going to be rewarded with parades and feasts and celebration, not just from Russia and Ukraine, but the entire world. They thought we were all going to say, oh man, great job guys. You really, you really did a good thing in this case. And that's because Ukraine had been demonized in the Russian media as this kind of monster that they were going to liberate and that all the people of Ukraine wanted this, that they were so oppressed and they could not wait to return to mother Russia. Um, and th this was all the way to the extent of, I, I, I heard stories of people being of Russians being pulled out of burned up armored vehicles and in their bags, what did they packed two or three days of food and their dress and parade uniform and shoes. They really wow. thought it was going to be over in a day or two and they would be throwing a parade. While I was in Ukraine, something that I saw personally was a Ka-52 attack helicopter that had been shot down over an airfield where we were doing some stuff. Um, and going through the wreckage of it, there was actually a guy who had uh, his, the, his, his, his supply bag was full of a few days of supplies, uh, some dress stuff, and then an entire bag of condoms. And so this guy, he's thinking, I'm going to Ukraine. What problems am I going to have? I'm going to need a lot of condoms. I mean, that, that was the level of delusion that these people had going in. And it's like, how could they believe this? It isn't because they went to Ukraine because they thought they were the bad guys. They thought they were the, the liberal guys. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I, I look at, I look at that. And I think at this point, most Russians understand that the dynamic, you know, they're still being told that Ukraine is awful. They're still being told that they're Nazis and that there's all these people who are really Russians and they wish they could get out from under the thumb of, the evil Zelensky, uh, but th they understand that, but now people understand there's kind of two sides. They know that the citizens of Ukraine are not universally ready to welcome mm -hmm. them. The, the reason I bring this up is the, that the most surprising thing I saw and the most dangerous weapon that I saw is that I see parallels to what is going on in China. People are saying, well, how is China going to pull this off politically? If they want to invade Taiwan, you know, how are they actually going to do that and not lose the mandate from their population? And you, one only has to look to Russia to see what will happen. If Russia was able to convince their people to put themselves, to put their lives on the line for this crazy lie that they were going to be thrown parades and having sex with a bunch of women, you know, immediately after a two-day invasion, what are they going to be telling the Chinese infantry forces? 
I imagine something similar. They're going to tell them you're here to reunify Taiwan. They all mm -hmm. actually want you to, you, they want to be reunified. They all believe that they are part of China and you just need to go out there, do a quick special operation and it's all going to be good. And it, basically, I, I guess what I'll conclude with is state media control is a powerful weapon because it turns people into weapons that will do things that no independent free thinking person ever would. Uh, you, you could never get a person in the United States to behave like this. You could never get a person to throw their life away like that because we have access to the truth. It's not always perfect and it's not always easy, but you know, we, we, we're not going to put our lives on the line without, without uh, some access to the truth. And that, that terrifies me mostly with the China situation. On Russia, you know, as we're kind of shooting this, you know, the last few days, you know, um, Putin has made some slightly scary remarks. The word nuclear has been thrown around a few times. So in terms of how this plays out, you know, we're kind of shooting this in like a first week of October. Like, where do you see this going from here in the next few months in the Ukraine conflict? I think that Putin is very likely to use a tactical nuke. Um, if, if, if only to make an example. I'm not convinced that Could he's... Could you explain what a tactical nuke means? Because for a lot of us, you know, yeah. Sorry, yeah, it, people might have heard it in video games, but not quite understand. Yeah. It, there's a difference in doctrine between the United States and Russia. The United States has taken the position that nuclear weapons are a strategic weapon. It is only to be used to either deter or respond to uh, an, an equivalent nuclear exchange. So huge bombs on big missiles that can take out large cities is the name of the game for the United States. We we And we actually used to have tactical nukes. We disassembled them all decades ago. Now, what is a tactical nuke? A tactical nuke is one that you don't use as a strategic weapon, but a tactical women, weapon, not to win a war, but to win a battle. You, you say, I'm going to use this nuke to blow up that tank formation over there, to destroy a carrier group that is sitting off my coast, to destroy a wing of bombers that are coming over me. In other words, a, 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 you know, a, a tactical weapon that can be used in an individual battle to accomplish a tactical objective uh, mm -hmm. as part of the normal war fighting process. Uh, not necessarily in response to the use of nuclear weapons. Um, Russia does have tactical nuclear weapons. They do believe in them as part of their standard warfighting doctrine. They do. It is basically the way they see themselves as being able to go toe to toe with NATO or the United States in a conventional conflict. And their bet, by the way, is that the United States and our allies will not respond to a tactical nuclear weapon with a strategic nuclear weapon and I, I i wish i could i wish i could say otherwise but they're actually probably betting correctly that we aren't going to stop them now I, i'm predicting the future and that's very dangerous to do i'm i'm not a i'm not a fortune teller but uh i think it's important to understand that putin does see nuclear weapons is on the table because of that a lot of people misunderstand they when they hear him saying he's going to use nuclear weapons they think of the u.s nuclear policy where you're basically starting world war three putin doesn't look that way even if we do he says no no like th this is the way we fight this is how we're going to counter aggression from the west is we're going to use tactical nuclear weapons to accomplish strategic objectives i don't think he's going to go and use a nuke in the maximally optimal way i don't think he's going to go and blow up the biggest city that he can find i think there's a very very high likelihood that we see employment of nuclear weapons to either just you know send a message by blowing up some remote warehouse somewhere or perhaps to achieve a real tactical objective like blowing up an airfield or taking out a large uh, you know a large heavily built up military uh, area so that that's what i suspect is going to happen it's not good you mentioned uh, right at the beginning that you know the direction where the war is going it doesn't look good 
this is, I'm guessing, a part of it. What what did you mean outside of this particular, well, like the nuclear part? Well, I mean, that's part of it is that yeah. he, like, like Putin is Putin is willing to escalate. Yeah. Uh, the European Union is headed for winter and yeah. they really, really, really need Russian oil and gas if they're going to survive the winter. And so should not have shut down all those nuclear plants. God, we could just have a whole talk about that. What a disaster. Anti-nuclear people. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't mean to take you off, but that's why they're in this place. Yeah. 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 We have to do it a different yeah. time. But the, 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 I guess when I say things are getting worse, we're in this situation where Putin basically bet I can do whatever I want and they're still going to buy billions of dollars continuously of my oil and gas. And the worst part is he was absolutely right. Like people, you, you hear these countries and these leaders saying, we stand with Ukraine. We reject the violence. Also, we're giving Russia billions of dollars that they are using to to run their entire war machine. I mean, it's yeah. it's a it, it is it is not a it is not a good situation, and it shows that we're only willing to stand up to these dictatorships to On the Twitter. extent, well, and to the extent that it doesn't hurt our comfort. This is actually mm -hmm. the worst part of this. If you look back to World War II, they did things that were very uncomfortable: food rationing, mandatory lights out before sundown so that bombers couldn't find anybody. I mean, oh, if, yeah. if you left your light on, it was like you would be exiled from the city. It was an enormous deal. And people were doing things like uh, not using their heating, huddling in blankets all day so that they could survive, so that they wouldn't have to use the limited fuel supplies that could instead go into allied bombers and allied warships. I mean, that was how we liberated Europe. It was because of people making those sacrifices. And now you have people saying, oh, we support Ukraine. Meanwhile, like when people say, oh, Germany needs oil and gas in order to not freeze to death this winter. It's like, wait a second. Let's get real. Nobody's going to freeze to death this winter. You can wear some warm clothes. You can bring back peat and coal burning. Like, There's so many things you can do. But everyone's like, oh, but what we really mean is we don't want energy prices to go up. And we don't want to have to wear warmer clothing in our houses. And we also don't want to miss our carbon dioxide emissions goals by bringing some of our coal plants online. And I, I wish people would be more clear about this because they try to make it, oh, we, 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 we can't beat Russia because our people will freeze to death. Imagine if they went out and were honest. We're like, we can't beat Russia because we really don't want to miss our carbon targets. And people would rather wear one sweater than two. I mean, that... It, it, it's absolutely nuts. Uh, so maybe the last question on Russia oh, and Ukraine. That, that's why things are getting worse because yeah. Putin's looking at that and he, unlike a lot of the media, which buys into the people are going to freeze narrative, Putin looks at it and says, they are not even willing to inconvenience themselves to stop me. Of course <laughs> I'm going to do whatever I want. And so that's that's why I'm so worried about the future of the war. We, we've shown Putin our resolve. It ain't that strong. <laughs> so yeah. one last question, Russia, like maybe the most interesting one. Let us say, there was a magic wand and you had total control over EU and US foreign policy on all things Ukraine and Russia. You know, you are sitting across the table from Putin and talk. What would you do? What would be the optimum, optimal uh, resolution of the situation? Okay, there's three parts to this. First of all, like if I was Zelensky, I'd be doing basically what he's doing right now. People have criticized Zelensky and said, oh, he's trying to drag the United States into World War III. He's doing things that are putting the rest of Europe he has at no choice. Yeah. What's yeah. that? He has no choice. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. Like, people criticize him for it. And I, I can't disagree. 
But that's also exactly what he should do as the elected leader of that democracy. It, anything less would be wholly unacceptable. And I would say the same for a U.S. leader. If a U.S. leader were to say, oh, I'm going to do something that condemns my country to Russian dictatorship and that leads to the death of millions of people. Uh, but, you know, at least I didn't drag those other countries into a conflict yeah. they preferred to not be in. But I guess I would actually be doing just about what he is doing right now. It's, and I'm not sure that it's going to be successful in getting Germany to do the right thing. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if it's going to be successful in getting the rest of the EU to contribute in the way they should be contributing, which is not just giving them weapons, but really, truly crippling Russia. Um, and so I would probably be doing what he's doing. Um, at the same time, I think, and I'm, I'm not trying to put you down, This is, but this is a blind spot I've had that I've, that I've been looking at. There's, a, I think, a, a pretty uniquely American delusion that is very common. And I think it's because of our media. Uh, where we 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 watch these stories and these legends and these tales where everything's terrible and it's getting worse, but at the last second, one brilliant person comes up with exactly the right idea, and that was all that was needed to turn it all around, fix everything, and resolve the situation with no more than maybe one or two heroic deaths as a sacrifice. Uh, you know, to really clinch the the story. Yeah. And in the real world, there's a lot of situations where. There is no good option this far on. All of the mm -hmm. options, all the times to have those breakthroughs were years or even decades ago. I mean, like mm -hmm. people ask about China, what can we do to stop, yeah. you know, the Taiwan situation? I'm like, well, you know what we could have done? Not let China into the World Trade Organization, not let them take over all of our manufacturing, not make our entire economy wholly dependent on a strategic adversary that wants to seize a democracy that is also extremely critically important for us. Like all these decisions were unfortunately made wrong decades ago. And in the real world, you often can't flip things around and have a great outcome. That's what's going on in Ukraine. There right. is no magical reversal. I'd say Zelensky is doing basically exactly the right thing. And I think that's nonetheless going to lead to countless thousands of further lives lost, uh, you know, countless billions maybe trillions of economic damage i don't i don't think there's an easy button right now and all the fun things people think of they say well what if you kill putin well the guy who replaces putin is is is, is probably not better uh and also well there's a whole lot of reasons but yep. you run down the list of kind of these extreme options none of them actually solve the problem i think if they did ukraine would have done them already because they are desperate yeah okay i want to move to china right and Let's you spoke a lot about china and taiwan and what could potentially play out there now, again, for those of us who kind of just track it in the surface, when you talk about China, we talked about hypersonics. We've talked yep. about their one, now maybe two aircraft carriers. Yep. Um, you know, I'm curious, it, what if the China-Taiwan thing were to play out, how would it play out? And how do you kind of sum up the sort of the forces and the capabilities of all, you know, China, Taiwan, and maybe the other parties involved? Well, it's worth noting that this, because this is not a given, it is, is people assume as a given that Taiwan is gearing up as best they can for that conflict. Um, that is not necessarily the case. And you'll notice mm -hmm. I'm hedging a little bit. Um, th there are a lot of people in Taiwan who are focused on buying the wrong things. They're buying, uh, they're, they're buying, uh, you know, blue water, blue water Navy ships that are not going to make a material difference in a invasion scenario. They're buying non-stealth fighters. They're going to be shot down in the first few minutes. They're trying to build their own very large submarines uh, that are not going to be able to fight in the strait in any kind of landing, any kind of landing scenario. 
and this isn't just my critique of Taiwan. This is a this is a domestic critique that many Taiwanese have is that their government is not agreed on what the right solution is. And if you really want to get into conspiracy world, which we might as well, there's people who think that a lot of people in the government don't necessarily want to maximally deter uh, China. They have to appear strong on China. They, they It's not politically viable to say, let's buy no weapons, but it is politically viable to push for the acquisition of weapons that look good and fly well in parades and, you know, look, look, look super awesome during air shows. And then, uh, won't actually deter Chinese aggression. So I think that that's one issue you have to realize is Taiwan in many ways is not doing themselves many favors. And they've, there was, a, I forget his name. There was a Taiwanese billionaire who recently said he was going to be committing hundreds of millions of his fortune to buying small weaponized drones and other asymmetrical advantages that they're not investing in enough on the government side because he doesn't think that the government is going to build them. So that, that, that that's worth noting. Mm. Um, in terms of how this is going to play out, it's, this here's my personal theory, and it's worth noting this is not the consensus of the intelligence community nor the DoD. This is my own personal theory for how it plays out, which I think is reasonably informed, but uh, not 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 perfect. So this is not necessarily gonna happen, but I'd say it's more likely than the other scenarios. I do not think that China is going to do an all-in-one massive large-scale invasion of Taiwan all at once and go and take all the ports and all of the airfields and then raise the flag a week later. I think it's very likely that China is going to basically launch a trade blockade. They'll launch some military ships. They're going to park them outside of all of the harbors and all of the ports. And they're going to come up with some kind of uh, justifiable to the Chinese people explanation for it along the lines of, well, you see, Taiwan is part of China, but they really haven't, you know, they, they've been thinking they're independent and they haven't been paying all of the tariffs and they haven't been complying with our with our customs laws for, for imports and inspection. And so this is, this is a trade blockade. This is a domestic internal Chinese issues issue. We're going to put our warships not to fight war, but to enforce our, our customs and immigration and tax law. And this is really an internal affair for us to make sure that they really get in line. Uh, you know, kind of putting a lot of pressure on them, pretending that it's not military action. Now, if they do that, every merchant vessel that comes up to the blockade, they're going to tell them to turn around. And you know what those merchant vessels are going to say? I have insurance. And they're going to turn around and go back to wherever they came from and offload everything. And so in this way, China could actually starve Taiwan of money, resources, food, mm -hmm. the ability to connect with the, with the broader world. And at the same time, make it less likely that Taiwan's allies are willing to start a shooting war. Like if, if, if China rolls in and starts bombing cities in Taiwan, I think that that's the most likely scenario where the United States and our allies are, our citizens will demand action. They'll say, we need to get our asses over there and, and protect these people. But how many people are willing to see the United States fire the first shot of aggression in what China is representing in the United Nations to be an internal, you know, an internal trade dispute? Um, like, are we really going to blow up a destroyer yeah. over, over China doing a, a blockade? And so I think it's actually, a, it, that would be a smart move for China and it would allow them to try a bunch of diplomatic pressure to force Taiwan under their thumb. And uh, then if that doesn't work, they now get to fight against a much weakened uh, Taiwan that has no money, no fire in their belly, and uh, a, 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 probably a lot less infrastructure to wage war with. Wow. wow. Um, By the way, um, if this happens, it will also be devastating to the U.S. economy 
because yeah. what what will happen is it's you know, there's a lot of scenarios people talk about like oh what if china you know blows up all the semiconductor plants well that's mm -hmm. really bad for our economy what if china takes over the semiconductor plants well that's bad too what if they blockade everything that's also really really bad for us and actually perhaps one of the worst situations is that china says oh it's a trade blockade and then taiwan is still allowed to export semiconductors but only into China, only for goods that the Chinese government wants. Like they could basically starve Taiwan and as they starve Taiwan, still reap the benefits of their semiconductor industry while denying them to the rest yeah, of the world. Yeah. It, basically China's in the driver's seat almost no matter what scenario you imagine. One last question on China, which is, you know, I'm oversimplified at this kind of, I would say the Peter Zeihan school of thought, which is the US projects naval power. We have more aircraft carriers than anybody else, you know, maybe most people put together. Um, and um, and that kind of like a lot of kind of the U.S. traditional U.S., uh, you know, um, projection of power comes from that. There's maybe an alternate school of thought that things like AI, hypersonics, you know, a lot of those will lead to asymmetric warfare in the future. So what is kind of your quick take of like AI, hypersonics, maybe a few other things in there? Uh, as opposed to having, you know, a Top Gun style aircraft carrier parked outside somewhere. I think that the second category you talked about is going to make that first category obsolete. Like if, if you look at, if you look at the idea of a carrier group, it used to be nigh on impenetrable and unbeatable. But if you mm -hmm. look at the war games that the United States runs, which by no means are worst case scenarios, um, you know, they'll say like, oh, we're going to have, you know, six incoming sea skimming hypersonic missiles and we lose most of the time. But sometimes we manage to we manage to hold it together. There's no reason to limit that to China. If China's really you know, there's an old saying, if you're uh, going to go for the king, you best not miss. Uh, mm -hmm. If China really is actually going to do a toe to toe conflict with the United States, they're not going to send six hypersonic missiles. They're going to send 300. They, they, could, they have the manufacturing capacity. They have the workforce. They have the raw materials. They don't need to limit themselves to me. And guess what? People say, oh, well, those missiles are shitty. And, you know, five out of five out of 10 of them are going to fall into the water on the way. Okay, fine. It won't be 200. It won't be 500 that make it. It'll be 250 of them that make it. I mean, oh that, yeah. see, but that that is. And we, the, one of the reasons this hasn't been done, it's not just because we couldn't manufacture them. It's because you can't command and control them. You can't have them working together in an intelligent way. We, we, you can't really do this with manned systems. The thing that enables you to use large numbers of munitions together in an intelligent way is artificial intelligence and autonomy and local networking, not long distance remote piloting. And uh, China's really good at that stuff. They have civil military mm -hmm. fusion where their best companies that are working on this tech not only are they working on military technology they are required by law to do so in china you cannot say that you're not going to work with the military it's it is simply it's it is not a path available to you and so in the we talked earlier about how snapchat has better ai in their app than you know it's just doing you know ar mustache emojis uh and then it, better than anything we have in our military that's not a problem in china whatever their military wants they will get and they will make it a priority. And I'd say the only thing that could really stop them from being able to pull that off is an economic collapse. And it would mm -hmm. have to be an economic collapse that forces their hand uh, where they have to prioritize uh, they have to prioritize other things. Um, Samuel, I, I, I feel like you're trying very hard to cheer us up, but it's not yeah. working. I don't know this why. This might be the scariest episode. <laughs> the scariest I mean, episode like, we've ever done. I mean, I, I don't want to. I don't want to make myself. I don't want to throw myself under the bus here, but. 
I mean, I'm part of the problem. We manufacture the Oculus Rift in China. I've spent quite a bit of time in China. I'm very familiar with their capabilities. People don't build in China just because it's cheap. That's kind of the, that's the old school, old school way of thinking. China is actually one of the more expensive places to get something manufactured these days, but they are actually very competent, have extraordinarily smart people, unmatched supply chain, and a regulatory climate that is driven by a government that is trying to make things happen, uh, even if it's at the expense of their people or of human rights right. or the climate. Right. And that right. that's very powerful. And like, I was part of the problem. You know, we we, we made the Oculus Rift in China because there really wasn't anywhere else in the world we could have made it. That's And not because of cost. And do you see that changing now with the hardware manufacturing as such? I mean, we come from India um, and Apple's kind of pushing some iPhone manufacturing in India, but it's going to be many, many, many years before, you know, you can see those switches happen. Well, it, it's going to be many years and Apple in particular, uh, they're only shifting to other countries to the extent that the Chinese government, I mean, the, Apple just agreed to invest a further $275 billion in Chinese manufacturing in exchange for continuing to operate as an independent company rather than as a Chinese joint venture. Like they will move their manufacturing to other countries to the extent China allows it and that they think that it's not going to hurt the Chinese Communist Party. For example, if China, if Apple said, we're going to move 10%, not even that much, like 10% of our manufacturing to Germany somehow, uh, because maybe Germany figures out, you know, they got all their brilliant techno heads. They figure out how to automate everything. China would lose their minds. If they said, we're going to move 5% of our manufacturing to Japan, China would lose their minds. And so yeah. you, 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 it's yeah. a, it's a very bizarre, it's a very bizarre okay. situation. Um, I wanted to switch topics a little bit because this is, we touched on this a little bit before, but, uh, how do you deal with haters? <laughs> yeah. How do I, I mean, the, the, the really nice thing about the industry that I'm in is compared with Oculus, where you had to manage so many people, like you, you had millions of customers all, you know, all over the world. You had, you worked with thousands of, of, of developers, all with their own opinions. Yeah. And you really had to convince all of those people that the thing yeah. that you needed was the best thing for them. The reality is there's not that many decision makers in the military. Like there's, there, there are, there are people who matter they, they, they set the strategic goals. They decide how they're going to go after them. And really, I need to make sure that those people know that I'm serious about supporting the U.S. military, that I'm never going to sell out, that I'm never going to back down and yeah. have my employees you know, write public letters about how awful they are. Um, and as long as those people don't hate me, I'm actually in a, in a, in a, in a pretty good place. Um, in, in terms of handling the haters, I mean, you, you guys have seen, I've, I've been pretty aggressive about this. I think that- Which, you know, which I, I love. I personally love it, yeah. that you just well, don't I, like hold it back. Well, I, I encourage founders to do this. Uh, you know, what, I think one of my biggest mistakes in the Oculus days was like one of the reasons I got fired. I know we've it's been covered many times, but just to touch on it, you, know, I, the reality is people weren't upset about what I actually did. They were upset about what the media reported that I did. And mm. what, what the media reported was untrue. It was, it was just, and not like in a few, you know, uh, nitpicky ways, like it was substantively completely false and fabricated reporting. You're saying Palmer's paying, uh, armies of, of anti-Semites and white supremacists to post misogynistic and anti-Semitic memes on social media and Twitter and, and, and Facebook. It's like, wait, wait, wait. I gave $9,000 to a group that ran one anti-Clinton billboard that said too big to jail. That was, that was literally it. That's all yeah. there was. But I mean, there's two things about that, which really struck me from back that era. And you've covered this. One is that it was one billboard in a physical billboard. So it was yeah, not an it was, online. It was, it was in Pittsburgh. The second part of it was you had this thing where you, in an email thread, you said you were going to be off the record with a reporter. Yep. 
Um, and they, oh, yeah, they it was kind confirmed of in writing multiple yeah. times and on the call. And yeah, you're right. And they said, oh, this is off the record. You know, we're just doing this to basically verify that some, you know, they, they wanted to verify that, you know, someone was actually paying for this and it was legit, but they said they wouldn't use my name. And then afterwards, the editor says, oh, no, on the call, he said that we could, we, we, we could, that it was on the record. It's like, wait a second. Like, and there's no proof of this, of course. And they could just lie and say that and say whatever they want. Um, and, you know, people will say, oh, Palmer must just not understand how on the record. You went to journalism works. school. That's right. I would not only did I go to journalism <laughs> school, I was the online editor of the college newspaper. Like I, I was right. I was a uh, I I understand how this stuff works. I'm not I'm not a dummy. And I had it in writing that it would be off yeah. the record. And they're like, oh, well, you changed your mind verbally in a call that we don't have a recording of. So you're right. It was kind of a mess. But I, I guess my point is um, a lot of people, you know, people were angry at me, not because of what I did, uh, but because what they what they what, what, what they said that I did. And uh, so I'm, I'm actually not ang that angry at those people. Like, I'm not angry at the people who are misled. I'm angry at the people who you know, were doing the misleading, because yeah. the, if, if I had actually done the things that they were reporting that I was doing, then they absolutely should have 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 been angry at me. And I'd say my biggest mistake at the time was basically following the advice of the Facebook PR professionals who said, don't say anything, let it blow over. And I said, but we need to, I want to say, like I drafted a statement where I said, hey, these stories are just, they're false. They're, 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 they're fabricated. And they said, no, no, you can't do that because that's what Donald Trump says about the media. I'm like, ignoring Donald Trump, the, the stories are clearly fabricated. Uh, and they're like, well, but if you say that, it'll sound like you're buying into this anti-media narrative writ large i'm like no 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 i just want to tell people that this case i'm not what i did is not what they're saying i did and unfortunately i think my biggest mistake was i let them convince me to not fight it and i think that made my life hard to the point where even today i mean we're six years later and there are still people credible people like people who are generally intelligent who still believe all of the old false reporting that they read. And so I encourage people to say, you, you know, if people are doing that to you, you have to push back. You have to be aggressive in the same way that you can have peace through strength in a military setting. You can also basically make yourself too prickly of a target to lie about. Uh, you, you don't have, you make yourself a person where if they're, if a media is going to report on you, they're going to make sure and double check everything they say because they know that if they are wrong, that you are going to go out and leverage your network to punch them in the face, metaphorically, with the with the problems with what they're saying. And I've, I've been doing that pretty successfully. And actually, I think it's really helped. I encourage other founders to do the same thing. I, something similar to some other founders have said on our show, which is, you know, which is why they've built a direct presence, you know, be it on Twitter, be it on, you know, stuff like this, where, yep. you know, you can hear from them directly as opposed to oh, from middlemen. So critical. You, you yeah. have to have an, an audience. It doesn't necessarily need to be huge, but the people who care about you and support you in particular, mm -hmm. they need to be able to hear from you directly. Like in my case, even the people who believed in me didn't have any kind of, uh, you know, uh, of, of, of counter narrative from me. And so even people who wanted to believe in Palmer, uh, felt, felt, felt that they couldn't. And, uh, that's, it, you, you got to at least give your, your supporters the ability to support you. I think uh, in the past we've talked to Balaji, uh, who basically said the same thing, like go direct. Uh, we talked to Brian Armstrong from Coinbase, you know, he even had yep. like the mission statement, all of that mm -hmm. within his yep. company, which at that time was like, 
controversial and groundbreaking. And now I see a lot more founders do that. I mean, Elon does it too. You know, Tesla yeah. doesn't have a PR department and, you know, maybe right. controversially, but I have to bring it up because if we're talking about the king of direct communication, there's really only one. Uh, yeah. And it was the last president of the United States. I mean, in the modern day, it's clearly a good way to get to get your side of things out without being mediated by somebody who doesn't necessarily have your best interests at heart. Um, you know, I want to you know, I want to play amateur psychologist because well, something about you, which a lot of young founders, uh, you know, uh, a lot of young founders looking at this will be struck by, which is, you know, you became rich after uh, uh, we, we can wrap up like, like pretty, uh, pretty soon. Uh, you became rich after uh, Meta and mm -hmm. then you kind of had this very public, uh, you know, um, thing where you kind of, I would say, exiled in a way. Um, <laughs> and. I think for a lot of people, they would have gone and they would have spent their money, like you said, opening a, a cancer, a, a, like something which is acceptable and generally noble. generally seen as noble and right. kind of work their way back into kind of like the public consciousness. But you seem to have an ability to pick an asymmetric bet and continue to remain unpopular. And I think that's actually maybe, I don't know, kind of like a key skill, because I think one thing which founders really need is the ability to do things that people don't like for long periods of time until one day. And be okay with it, you know, I mean, just it, like not let that bother you. To, to be honest, it, it, it's a little bit of return to form for me. It wasn't a new thing. Remember that VR wasn't popular. I mean, it, it, at all. It was a joke technology. And people also forget that when we were trying to raise money for the first time, Almost everyone told us no. In fact, you know, not not to drag up any negative history. You know, Mark ended up on our board, and I'm very happy that they let our series be. It was a huge deal. But when we talked talked with with A16Z, uh, their response was, "Gee, I'm not I'm not sure if this VR stuff is uh, you know really actually going to pan out. I'm not sure if you're going to be able to make it work. Uh, but if you succeed, we would love to support you in the future. And then of course we we did get through a lot of technical barriers, and they did end up leading our series B. So really glad that happened. But like there was a time where VR, it wasn't cool with investors. It was very hard to raise money. It certainly wasn't cool with the public. And people look at kind of our explosion at the beginning with Kickstarter. That was a bunch of weirdo, hardcore niche gamers. Like mm -hmm. we found 7,000 people willing to give us money. But I mean, that was the biggest VR success story in history. So, you know, working on unpopular things, of course, people didn't really hate you for VR. I guess that's right. the difference. But, you know, working on something that people thought was a dead end because there were people who thought defense is bad and a lot of people thought oh it's a backwater you just can't succeed you you know, it's, it's just this kind of cost plus contracting morass and yeah. uh i th that that really felt to me the same as i had felt in the early days of oculus where people they just didn't understand where it was going and how important important yeah. it would be yeah and, you know, I, I considered two other things i considered petroleum food products to solve the obesity epidemic mm -hmm. uh and then also private prison reform by starting a non-private nonprofit private prison chain that would only charge governments after the prisoner had served their sentence and remained out of prison for five years. Um, there, there's a wide variety of reasons I didn't do those things. It basically boiled down to uh, it was going to take many, many years of of lobbying to make it happen. It wasn't a technological problem in either case. It was more a marketing problem in the case of petroleum food and a lobbying problem in the case of prison reform. And as I looked at all these problems, like I actually still think those are worthy problems, but I felt like national security wise, I felt like we were just like the world was sitting on top of a bunch of dry powder and it was ready to go up in flames. And I was going to feel like an idiot if I didn't do some part to be a small part of it. And unfortunately, yeah. Ukraine happened earlier than I expected. I'm praying that Taiwan doesn't have <laughs> have the same thing happen. Yeah, yeah makes sense. Um, you know, one final question before we wrap. Um, 
a lot of people listening to our show are young kids, founders, or people who want to be founders. I love the kids. Um, and, you know, they, they come in and they listen to our show because they get you know, people like you come in and talk about how to build companies, how hard it is to build companies, how to persevere, uh, mm -hmm. how, how to be unpopular and be okay with it, you know, all of that. What advice do you have for people, kids who are just about to start out, have ideas, don't have ideas, but just thinking about starting companies? Well, I feel a little bit like a kid myself some days. I just turned 30 like a few days ago. So I'm no longer a whiz kid. I'm a whiz man. Which you're is you're over the hill, Palmer. You're over the hill. <laughs> I, I, well, the, the thing is, I've, I, my whole career, I've been Palmer Lucky, the implausibly successful young person. Uh, and now I'm just Palmer Lucky. He is successful. Um, and uh, for people who actually are still kids, I guess a, a few things. One, uh, don't trust your friends and your family when they tell you, you know, what your passion, the, the, when they say, oh, you're so good at X or Y or Z, you should follow your passion. Uh, because uh, parents in particular, uh, statistically hugely overestimate the abilities of, of their offspring. Uh, you need to go and find people who are not tied to you. So if you find mentors, find whether it's professors or, you know, or hobbyists, find someone who can uh, objectively grade you on what your strengths and weaknesses are because you don't want to waste time pursuing something that you like doing uh, that you are not necessarily really cut out for, especially if you think you're better at it than you are. That's that's a that's a very dangerous path. And maybe it means you decide to get better at it first. But I see a lot of founders who think that they're better at something than they are. And you see that when they're talking about the strength of their startups. Like, yeah, you know, I'm really good at X, Y, or Z. And then you look at their design, you're like, I don't think so, man. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it's important to know that. I guess the second bit of advice would be, uh, you know, be, be careful who you trust. But in general, the job of an executive is to make yourself obsolete. If you are the best person in the company at doing something, you've probably been negligent in your hiring process. And this doesn't apply in the very early days. In the very early days, everyone wears hats. Like, don't feel mm -hmm. like you can't do anything when, you, when, you're, when you're 10 people. But once you get to the point where you're 50 people or 60 people, I see a lot of people holding on to the things they like doing because they like doing it and they think mm -hmm. that they're just God's gift to the earth at whatever that thing is. And how do I know that? Because I, I, that was me. I mean, there was a time where I really wanted to hold on to the hardware design and the electrical design and the optical design. It took me a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of working through my personal issues to realize that I was not the best optical engineer in the world. I was not the best mechanical engineer, not even close. And I needed to hire people to do all of that for me because I could do those things to some degree, but it would just be me, me playing house to the detriment of my customers and my investors and my employees. And so that leads to my final bit of advice, which is uh, you know, when kids ask me, they come and say, Palmer, I love programming. I want to start a technology company. What advice do you have for me? My advice is that if you really love technology and you really love programming, do not start a technology company. If you want to work on nonstop bullshit, you should definitely start a technology company because that that's really your job at the end of the day. It's not to work on the tech that you love and the, the you know, to program the computer because that's what you like doing. Like you're the final backstop for HR issues, fundraising issues, legal issues, interpersonal employee issues, uh, str broad strategic issues, working with government regulators. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I do and my life's great. I can't complain, but there's a lot of stuff I do. It's not what I want to be doing, but it's what I have to be doing. I wish mm -hmm. I could throw it all away and, you know, go and sit at a computer and just, you know, do, do, do the fun design stuff that I like and the fun engineering stuff that I like, but, but alas, and 
I, I think it's important for people to understand because I, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it with this. There is a fetishization of being the founder, the person who runs the company that I, I, I think it's healthy in some ways. It gets people to not go work at a big tech megacorp and instead do something different. It gets people to you know, really try to reach their maximum potential. But I think that the, the issue with that fetishization is that it downplays the importance of maybe not the founder, but the chief technical officer of the company, uh, you know, one of the lead hardware engineers of the company, the guy who's the chief architect for the software. Those are extraordinarily important roles. And I feel like there's a lot of smart people out there who could be absolutely killing it, working on tech every day, digging into the tech, and they would be happy and healthy and well-paid. And instead, they're trying to force themselves into that founder Pay, you know, hole and they're and they're around peg, and so they're unhappy and they 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 feel like they didn't get what they were promised. And I encourage people if if you are struggling in particular, consider that you don't necessarily need to be the CEO or you know the the the, the founder. There's you can do a lot of cool things in the tech industry wow. without doing that. Wow. Amazing. Okay, that, that it's, it's is awesome. amazing. It's very okay. unconventional, yeah. by the way. Like, this is not what other founders would usually say. By the way, I'm not the CEO of Android, and I wasn't the CEO of Oculus for more than a few months. I immediately offloaded that shitty job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was one of the best realizations I've ever had is that That's awesome. like, people want the ego, right? They want the business card. They want the LinkedIn CEO. Uh, it, it's, you should only be CEO if, like, remember, like, if you really want to be the chief executive officer, like, is that what you think of when you think the word executive and the duties associated with the word executive? Is that what you get excited about in the morning? If not, consider what you actually want to do. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, Palmer, okay. This is amazing. I want to say two things. Number one, your story is fantastic. For in an alternate timeline, a lot of alternate timelines, you would have disappeared off after what happened at Meta. But to see the comeback, go and see, build another amazing company. That's just remarkable. And someday when this movie of your life is, you know, done, um, you know, it, it, this, this is going to be an amazing network. The second thing is, we get a lot of people on the show, but I think what you're trying to accomplish is something anybody who's watching who cares about the force of democracy, freedom, and all the things, and maybe they don't even live in the U.S., but I think large parts of the world, like mm -hmm. we people would probably want you and you know people like you to succeed so you know it just and i think finally as as founders and founders watching this and as a founder myself what you say like your story is so inspiring it makes us like run through walls i was uh, listening to you know your other talks and it's just so inspiring to see what you do and how you're so curious about really fundamental foundational things and you're just willing to just reinvent yourself over and over again. And I think there's just a lesson there for people who are like starting out things and trying something new. Oh, yeah. Got to know a lot. You got to know a little about a lot. Oh, <laughs> that's, how, that's, how you, that's how you succeed. I love it. Okay, so Palmer, awesome. this was amazing. Thank you so, so much. Of course. Thank Bye, you. everyone.